Uh, let's stand and uh, read this psalm together. Psalm 13. This will be the first in, I think, three sermons uh, from the Psalms. And looking at the Psalms really as uh, ways that we can uh, grow in our own walk with God, as tools in our life. There are many different types of Psalms. This is a Psalm of Lament. And uh, I want us to look today at how we can use Psalms of Lament in our life. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take my counsel, take counsel in my soul, and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Father, now would you open our hearts that we would hear and understand and use this psalm and many more as we worship you and as we grow in our own maturity, understanding of who you are and who you've made us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Before we uh, began the church here in, in Golden Hill, South Park, we, uh, Mandy and I went around and visited different uh, churches in the area. And one of the churches we visited was uh, a Reformed Presbyterian church over in a college, uh, off of College Ave. And this, uh, this church is one that, uh, for their music, only sings psalms, the psalms of, of the Bible. And Furthermore, doesn't use instruments to accompany those psalms. And uh, maybe some of you know this, the Presbyterian tradition, at least the part of Presbyterian tradition that came out of Scotland, the majority of those people would sing only uh, psalms in their worship. Now, obviously we don't do that, and uh, we don't see that that is a a command in Scripture. I I don't believe that is a, a specific command in Scripture. But there's one thing that I can say for, uh, for this practice, and that is, um, how many times in our praise songs, in our hymn, even in our hymns, our older hymns, do we sing the words, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Do we express to God a deep sense of emotional angst, saying, how long, O Lord, will you forget me? Or in, in, in Psalm 12 is another one. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. Or Psalm 22 that Jesus quotes when he is 
hanging on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. And you can go through the Psalms and you find many Psalms like this that cry out with a very honest angst, God, where are you? What are you doing? Will you help me? I need help. Now the Psalms are the hymn book of the Bible. I mean, they are the songs that the, the, the people of Israel, the worshipers of God, God's chosen people, sang for hundreds of years in worship of God, and yet we don't have this type of song much in our repertoire. And we sang one, it is well with my soul today, it is well with my soul. I don't know if you know the, the history of that song, but uh, it was written, I believe, in the 1700s. You can check the bulletin there. It should have the date on it. 1700s after a man uh, got word that his wife and his children had all been lost at sea and he was left alone. (coughs) How long, O Lord, will you leave me forever? Job, Job, that great patriarch who... God allows, in his sovereignty, allows Satan to take his whole family, wife, children, grandchildren, all of his possessions. And Job cries out in Job chapter 20 of one one place in various places, God, how long will you let me endure this? I want us to look at this psalm today in particular to learn how to use these psalms when we feel like we're in a place that we do not know where God is going. We feel like God has abandoned us. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How to use these in a a healthy way? How to use them as the songs of God? Maybe even sometimes we'll we'll sing these songs. There's one song that we use. uh, I don't think we use it at this church, but as the deer pants pants for the water, so my soul longs after you, God. Maybe we can use more of these psalms in our worship to express a broader range of our emotions, a broader range of our honest feelings, that we would honestly express these things to God, that he would teach us through these psalms how to pray, through other psalms how to confess our sins, through other psalms how to worship God in his holiness, through other psalms how to teach other people the things that God has taught us. There are a lot of people in the church today, maybe you've heard this, who teach that there's no place for despair in our lives. If you feel despair, it must be from Satan because it surely surely is not from God. If you feel despair that it is something that is wrong in your thinking about God. And still there are other people on the other side of the spectrum that say, this is just how life is. The Christian life is full of hurt and pain. We just have to hang in there until the end. Just endure. I think, again, some of the 
the Puritans, some of that Scottish, uh, Scottish Presbyterian and English Puritan, one strand of the Reformed faith that we've, uh, we've inherited. This, the, the Reformed faith comes out of the time of the Reformation when, when the, the wholeness of salvation by faith in God's work alone was restored. And the Puritans are praised, and rightly so, for a lot of places, but they like to hang out in despair. And they stayed there. And they wouldn't let go. But in this psalm, and in every psalm of lament that I'm aware of, the psalmist always begins in one place. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is the first verse of Psalm 22 that, that Jesus quotes, but they always move to someplace else. So we can express these voices of angst honestly, and we need to do that, but we also need to, to be moved toward a healthy direction. And these psalms, by the way, are not a lack of faith. I mean, think about how much faith it takes to cry out to God when you feel abandoned by God alone and cry out to God, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? These psalms take immense faith. David, the author of this psalm, is crying out to God out of his despair, and it is evidence of his deep faith. David hasn't given up on God. He's clinging to the hopes of God's promises. And his clinging to this hope is evidence of his faith. But the psalm moves him and David is using this in a way that the psalm is moving so many other people, people in his day, but hundreds, thousands, millions, tens of millions, perhaps even hundreds of millions of people, maybe even billions of people out of this place of despair and into a place of hope. As a, he's giving this to us as a pattern as a pattern of crying out to God, when we are in a place of despair and even depression, God, how long will you forget me forever? Now, let's look at this just in the way that the psalmist breaks it up into three parts, two, two verses per stanza here, first and second verse, third and fourth verse, fifth and sixth verse. And just look at the pattern that David gives us for calling out to, to God. The first thing, verses one and two, he says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Four times, how long? How long, O Lord? You ever feel like God is waiting too long to answer your prayers? If you feel that way, you're not alone. King David crying out, How long, O Lord? As I read this, I didn't, hear, I didn't read through all of Calvin to, to find this, but John Calvin, that great, uh, great theologian of the Reformation who dove into the scriptures, this psalm was his most frequent prayer. When he saw so much happening as a revitalization of faith and so many people coming to faith and having their faith renewed, still his most frequent prayer was, How long, O Lord? 
maybe even a prayer of his own. How long, O Lord, will you forsake me forever? And this points to the reality of isolation that leaders experience. Now, I would venture to say that all of us exercise leadership in some area, some of us more than others, but leaders, David, in his leading the kingdom, experiences this kind of isolation where he's left to his own devices. The, 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 the situation that David is in isn't quite clear from, uh, from the passage here, from the, the psalm. He doesn't say what the situation was, but many people have speculated that it's either the time when David has been anointed to be king, and yet Saul is still king in Israel, and Saul is trying to kill David, and so he, David, has just a small band of people that he's gathered around him, and they're fleeing from Saul uh, for fear of, fear of their lives. I think it's possibly more accurate, more plausible that this psalm was written when David is fleeing from his own son, Absalom. And David, king of Israel, has to leave Jerusalem and flee. This is in 2 Samuel 15 to 20. He has to leave Jerusalem and flee because Many people in Jerusalem have rallied behind Absalom and saying, David's no longer a good king. I need to be king, Absalom says. Even some of David's most trusted advisors left and went to serve Absalom. And so David says, how long must I take counsel in my soul? How long... Do I need to leave here just by myself, live here just by myself, trying to come up with an answer? I feel like not only have my advisors left and one of my own sons left, but God, I feel like you have left me as well. Now, I don't think this is just isolation that leaders feel. I think this is isolation that is growing and that all of us feel in this culture. We experience life in a much more isolated way today than in most times in history. Now, you can blame this on technology and feeling like we find uh, community in places like Facebook and email, but I think that this is, this is something that is just our human nature is prone to lead us into places of isolation because our human nature says, if I share my feelings with other people, they won't love me. If I feel my, share my deepest angst and my deepest fears and my deepest despairs and even my depression with other people, they'll leave me. If David shares his deepest sins, sins of adultery and even murder, as he already has at this point, when Absalom leaves him, will people leave him? Maybe this was part of the reason that people left him. And it may seem easy and obvious to say, you just need to share your life with other people. But the reality is that when we share our deepest hurts and fears and struggles and despairs and sins, that many people do leave us. 
The answer isn't as simple as we just need to be more open. The answer is that we need to find somebody, trustworthy people, who can handle our deepest hurts and fears and emotions and even sins and lead us into better places and lead us into places of healing. And David, in his aloneness, in his loneliness, turns to the only and first person who can truly do that, who's already assured him of his forgiveness and his right standing with him, and that is God. Who already knows who already feels our pain and on this side of the cross has already experienced the pain of that kind of isolation. Jesus felt this kind of isolation when he was led to the cross and hung on the cross. And so he quotes the psalm of lament saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why do I feel alone? Why do we feel alone? It's because of our sin. It's because of others' sin. It's because of sin in the world that says to us, that reminds us, you have alienated yourself. I am not going to receive you. I am not going to forgive you. I am not going to rescue you. But the good news of the gospel is that God reaches down into those deepest, darkest places in our life and says, I am going to rescue you. Call out to me. Be honest, brutally honest with me. Call out and say, how long, God, are you going to leave me in this place? And God will say, I will rescue you. I have rescued you. And this is where the psalmist is leading us to remind us of this. Even in verses three and four, we see David beginning an ascent in saying, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaking. David is continuing to come up that hill and say, God, I know that you can bring hope back into my life. I feel like dying. I feel like I may already be dead. Will you give me life again? I feel like I'm heading off the cliff. Worse than that, I feel like if I head off the cliff, then all those people who have been telling me, you just need to do this or you need to do that, they're going to prove themselves right. I want to be right. Don't let them gloat over me. This raises an interesting question. Who are our enemies? I mean, if I asked you today, who is your enemy? Who would you tell me? Everybody's thinking of somebody, maybe a couple people. Who are your enemies? Who were David's enemies? Who are our real enemies? Are your enemies people who've led you into bad places before? You want to avoid them at all costs? Are your enemies the people you work with who are fighting and jostling for position at your company or in, in your in wherever you are, in your school? Is your enemy your boss who's just beating you down and you wish you could have victory over him or her? 
Is your enemy your neighbor? Are you quarreling with your neighbor? I had a neighbor one time who, neighbor next to him, or them, they just, they fought incessantly. They, they had more calls into the police than anybody else. Police actually called them in to sit down with one another. Are you fighting with your neighbor over, over what? Is your enemy your spouse? You quarrel, do you say, how long, O Lord? Vindicate me, I'm right, they're wrong. Sibling? Unless my enemies say I have prevailed over him. For David, I think this is a very tangible enemy. It was Absalom. But do you know who Absalom was? He was his son. Do you know what David thought about his son? He didn't want to harm him. In fact, when Absalom raises up an army and David raises up an army and they go to fight one another, 20,000 people die on the battlefield. 20,000 people, to give you some idea, that's, that's roughly the, the order of magnitude, I believe, I'm not sure, the order of magnitude of, of the Battle of Gettysburg, the bloodiest battle of the Civil War and one of the bloodiest of all time in history. 20,000 people die, and yet David says, don't kill Absalom, my son. I mean, the enemies that we face oftentimes are a, a convoluted mix of people that we love and yet are standing against us and how do we untangle these things? How do we address them? I mean, this is where I think, if anything, our culture has made some progress in the stories that we tell because we don't just tell stories of black and white, good and evil, but we realize in our stories that, 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 that stories are confusing. They're, they're mixed People aren't black and white. Characters are complex. Our lives are complex. We are enemies to somebody. Because we all still live with some reality of sin in our life. Regardless of how sanctified we have become, how much God has worked to take away sins out of our lives and remove them and replace them with righteousness, we still stand as enemies to somebody, and it's only by God working in our lives that he brings reconciliation between enemies. Maybe this is some of what God's getting at when Jesus says, love your enemies, and by loving them, you pour heaping, you heap coals onto their head, you defeat them. Love your enemies. There's still a battle that wages, and some people are more evil than others, oftentimes the most evil of people, going back to the subject of leaders, are leaders and people like Pharaoh, who was completely oppressive and abusive in Egypt, and people like Hitler, who was amazingly cruel to the point of murdering millions of people. Leaders epitomize evil, or leaders can be Faces of good, but even the best leaders are still not fully good. And most of us, leaders not, are somewhere in this spectrum still needing redemption and work in our own lives. David, Absalom, you and me. And yet there is still enemy. There is still an enemy that needs to be defeated. There is a pure evil, and that is the spiritual forces 
that are at work in and around us that are very real. Satan and all of his demons are pure evil. In fact, Satan is called the father of lies. And the father of all lies is if God only knew what you did, he wouldn't love you. If everybody else only knew what you did, they wouldn't love you. But God already knows, and he has already paid that price by the propitiation of the blood of Jesus that has been offered on your behalf, and he says, I still love you. God speaks truth when our enemies, Satan, his demons, speak lies. I still love you. And this is where David goes as he goes, continues to ascend up that hill into verses 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. David feared that his enemies would outlast him. But he's reminding himself and us of the truth that God will outlast them. We fear that our enemies will outlast us, but the truth is that God will outlast them. In his steadfast love, in his, this beautiful Hebrew word, hesed, which is translated in the ESV Bible as steadfast love, his, his firm love, but it's a much broader thing, just like shalom, peace, complete prosperity is a much bigger thought in the, in the Hebrew mind than in, in the, the simple translation of peace. Steadfast love, chesed, means that God is steadfast, that it's a fullness of love, that it is a love that encompasses grace. Did you know that there is not even a word in the Old Testament that can be easily translated to grace except for chesed? It is the love of a gracious father who is long-suffering, who is willing to endure for a long time the sins and the short-sightedness of his children, the wanting to say, I want my way when God the Father knows my way is better for you, for you than what you want. He goes on to say, I will sing to the Lord. Because he has dealt bountifully with me. This word bountifully even is a a limited translation. It doesn't mean simply that he's given me all of my desires. Some of you may have the NIV translation. This is how how the NIV translates it. That he has given me all of my heart desires, my deepest heart desires. But do you know, know this, that your deepest heart desires are still not as good as God's desires and bountiful provision for your life. In his chesed, he still knows what you need more than what you want. And David is clinging to the promise in his lament, in his how long, he says, but you, God, know better than me what I need. Now, I want to answer an objection that commonly comes up among Christians and non-Christians. How can there be such suffering, such evil in this world if God is truly sovereign over all things? And I wish I could give you a clear, pat answer. 
But the reality is that we don't know. I mean, why doesn't God take away cancer? Why doesn't God take away the pain of children dying before their parents die? Why doesn't God take away seemingly meaningless suffering in this world? And the only answer that I can give us is that we don't know and we don't know if there is a better way. I mean, can you be sure that there is a better way if you were to map it out? Can you say for God, why don't you just do it this way? This way would be better. And and can you say it decisively? Can you prove it? I mean, this is, we can't come up with a better plan. And if you did come up with a better plan, how do you know it's the better plan? How can you be sure? The, the songwriter, Rich Mullins, again, I want to come bring us back to modern songs. I think that songs are meant to continually be written, new songs and, and old songs meant to be sung. That's why we sing new and old songs. He wrote this song, Rich Mullins, by the way, who died tragically in a car accident at the height of his career, Christian songwriter, had a song called The Maker of Noses. He speaks of the hope of something better. He says, I believe there is a place where people live in perfect peace, where there is food on every plate, where work is rewarded and rest is sweet, where the color of your skin won't get you in or keep you out, where justice reigns and truth finally wins. It's hard-fought war against fear and doubt And everyone I know wants to go there too. But when I ask them how to do it, they seem so confused. Do I turn to the left? Do I turn to the right? When I turn to the world, they give me this advice. They said, boy, you just follow your heart. But my heart just led me into my chest. They said, follow your nose. But the direction changed every time I went and turned my head. They said, boy, you just follow your dreams. But my dreams were only misty notions. But the father of hearts and the maker of noses and the giver of dreams, he's the one I've chosen and I will follow him. This is a song of lament put in modern day voices. How long, O Lord, will you let me stay in my own counsel? I turn to the left, I turn to the right, and I just find that the direction changes all the time, but I know your ways are good for me. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation, and I will sing to the Lord. He moves from this place of groaning and lament into this place of joy and vibrant song. Because he recognizes the goodness of God and he reminds himself of that goodness that oftentimes he can't see. I heard a story from a pastor and friend of mine uh, uh, whose name is George Robertson. Every time I preach from the Psalms, I draw heavily from his sermons. You can go and listen to him. He pastors First Presbyterian Church in Augusta, Georgia. He told a story 
It's also recounted by another songwriter who wrote a song called The Moon is Round. The songwriter is named Alan Levi. The Moon is Round, and he tells a story of going into a house in Knoxville, Tennessee. This isn't a song or a story that I know from Mandy. <clears throat> Knoxville, Tennessee. And in that house... They had a, a round stone, I think, inset into the foyer of the house. And it had the words written on it, inscribed, carved into it. The moon is round. And Alan and some other musicians who were visiting asked them, what does this mean? And the homeowners said, told them a story of a young girl who was a teenager, 14 years old, from St. Louis, Missouri who was diagnosed with cancer when she was 13, and her parents asked her to begin a journal. And so she journaled for the last year of her life before she died at 14. And after her death, they were reading through her journal. And the bookmark that she used had written on it the words, the moon is round. And they puzzled over what this these words might mean for a long time, and they ultimately don't know what they, uh, they meant. But one day as they were gazing at the moon, and it was full, clouds came over the moon and distorted their view of it and eventually blocked it out entirely. And they thought about how the moon waxes and wanes. And it goes away and you can see only a half of it and sometimes you can see only the smallest sliver of it. And yet you know that the moon is still round. Even when the clouds cover it, even when the earth covers over it and it's distorted, you know that it's still round. The moon is round, he wrote a song, he called it as full and then it's a quarter, it's fingernail, then gone. At times the clouds will hide it from my sight, the only thing that changes is my partial point of view. But I know the moon is up there every night. When the light cannot be seen, when the circle can't be found, the moon is round, the moon is round. The moon is round. God and his goodness and his sovereignty and his protection and his chesed and his bountiful provision are there, whether we see them or not. We don't know why we go through periods of dark doubt and despair and even depression. But we do know that God is there. The moon is round. Amen. Father of mercies. We know the moon is round. And we know from your word that you are there. Not just there and aloof, but there and active. Knowing all of our pain and suffering and sickness, and doubt, and despair, and even depression, and sin. 
and that you have loved us through Jesus nonetheless. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.